Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. Welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect Podcast, where each week I'm joined by some of the world's most renowned faces in the entertainment industry, on the sports field, corporate leaders, and inspirational thought leaders around the world, each sharing their own truths and personal journeys. Today, we have none other than John Lee Brody. He's an award-winning Korean-American actor, filmmaker. As an actor, he's appeared in films like Star Trek Into Darkness, Fast and Furious 7, and James Wan's Malignant. His work as a director, writer, and producer covers multiple genres and multiple job titles. In 2019, John directed the DC Universe show, DC Universe All-Star Games, making him the first ever Korean-American to direct a TV show for DC Comics. Most recently, he wrapped production on the original superhero comedy pilot. Most recently, he wrapped production on the original superhero comedy pilot, B-Man, and has multiple projects slated for 2023. He's also a mental health advocate and co-host the podcast Real Psychology with Dana Williams. The podcast discusses the mental health of fictional characters from TV and film and utilizes that to parlay into an overall mental health discussion. John also has a horror podcast with Amazon Wondering Morbid Network called That Was Pretty Scary, which he co-hosts with Freddie Prince Jr. And he's also the CEO of Amazing HQ, a sports media outlet that focuses on Asian American athletes. So without further ado, guys, I'm excited for this conversation. It is John Lee Brody. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you for having me. And uh, how cool is technology where we're on opposite ends of the world, but we're connected here to have a conversation? I think that's pretty awesome. Exactly. And the conversation about something that we're so passionate about when it comes to mental health advocacy. And I suppose with knowing so much of your work and the projects that you've done from an external and the trajectory that people can see of a career, background, heritage, Korean to Hollywood, and now you do some incredible shows, directing, producing. Can you just lead our audience the beginning towards all this? You know, when I, so I grew up in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, and my original dream was to be a professional athlete. I, I always had a, a love for movies. My literal first memory is watching the 1978 Superman movie with starring in the great Chris, great uh, late great Christopher Reeve and was just so enthralled by that. I just, the fact that I believe that this person was real and the power of movies really hit me early on. I never thought of it as something that could be a career. Uh, so I was like, well, uh, being a professional athlete does though. Cause, cause <laughs> as long as I'm good at basketball or, or uh, whatever sport, then that could be a, a viable career path. So that was really the beginning of it, but also on top of that dream was the mindset of, well, every professional athlete gets some sort of a movie deal. If Shaq got to do Kazam, then surely they'll give me something. <laughs> and uh, I got nothing but love for Shaq, and that's not a knock. I'm just saying if he can get a movie like that or they give, uh, well, MJ was the biggest star on the planet at the time, but still MJ got Space Jam. I knew that with the opportunity of being a good basketball player could come other opportunities. But uh, I did end up going to college and playing uh, college football and not basketball, but did not make it to the goal of the NFL. So the dream of being a professional athlete was essentially done. And there was a, a few other 
things going on in my life at the time. My my dad was in the early stage of his Parkinson's. Uh, my brother unknowingly was in the early stages of uh, his schizophrenia. So I didn't know, like there was stuff going on personally and I was going through a really tough breakup towards the end of my college tenure. So it really hit almost, I guess the only term I can use is existential crisis as I graduated college and I had these opportunities to go to law school, uh, to have an internship with Barack Obama and none of it felt like it was going to be fulfilling for me. So what I essentially did was I deferred my law school applications just in case I changed my mind in a year. I turned turned down a Barack Obama internship so I could take a year off and really figure out what it is I wanted to do. And what happened was, is I ended up going to acting classes because I always wanted to do it. I always just loved the art of cinema and loved the art of acting. And this was my chance. If this is my one year window to try the things I want to try, then I'm going to, I'm going to just go for it. Cause what harm could there be? in doing so. And what happened was I ended up really just feeling like this is where I belong. This is what I should have been doing. And I had the whole thought of I should have done school play instead of playing sports in high school. All those thoughts sort of came to mind. And and so on August 1st, 2008, I flew out to LA on a one-way ticket. And I said, let me try it out for a year and see what happens. And uh, this is my 15th year in the industry. And uh, yeah, that was really the genesis of it though. And uh, that's the Cliff Notes version. There's, there's certainly more to it, but that's a good way to get people started. Yeah, but I love the attitude. It's, it's just a, a one-way ticket. And I suppose I always say to people, because that takes something. Like on an external, we can see that and, and you thought you'd try that and then you got an internship and this and that and then you got a one-way ticket to LA. What do you believe it takes integrally to have that motivation or that drive just to go, you know what, I'm going to try it I've got nothing to lose. What was it for you? Well, it was, like I said, it was a very unique time in my life because uh, certain health things going on with my my father and my brother. And it was an awakening of, look, I, I, prior to that, I lived my life in a very almost left brain thinking linear path. I said, these are the plans. I'm going to do this. This is what's going to happen. When all that got derailed, it was really an awakening that uh, there's this old saying, we make plans and God laughs. I don't know if that's the exact quote, but people have said that. And that's no way to live your life to think this is what we have to do. Now, that doesn't mean don't just go freestyling everything. You should have a foundation, which you pull from, but you don't have to be married to this is step one through 10. Uh, sometimes you could take a detour because sometimes you got to move and adapt. So for me, just I was in a very unique mental headspace, knowing that life is not uh, forever. Life is not tomorrow's not promised. And the time to do it would be now. I knew if I didn't move August of 2008, if I would have waited a year, I would have never gone. I, I know that for a hundred percent fact, because I would have found something comfortable at home. And um, really what it comes down to is, this is a, one of my favorite quotes is from Bruce Lee. And now people think Bruce Lee, they think be like water, everything, which is a great quote, uh, which he also got from Shinryo Suzuki, to be fair, uh, with Zen Buddhism. But uh, just throwing that out there. But he had this quote, the great mistake is to anticipate the outcome of the engagement. You ought not be thinking whether it'll end in victory or defeat. Let nature take its course and your tools will strike at the right moment. And what I mean by that is, and also Michael Jordan had a quote, why would I worry about a jump shot I haven't even taken yet? I think a lot of times we get in our own way. Uh, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? And a lot of times when we do the what is, it's the worst case scenario. And 
if that's somebody's process to getting to the root of whether they should make a decision, then by all means, utilize that if that helps. But for me, it's just, if you feel in your heart that you want to pursue this, then pursue it. Now do it responsibly. Don't be reckless about it. But I think you just got to go for it. And if if coach is going to give you the ball with three seconds left in the clock and saying you get the last shot, don't sit there and worry if you're going to make the shot or not. Take your shot. Take your best shot that you can. If it goes in, you get to celebrate. If it doesn't, guess what? You get to wake up the next morning and go at it again. Whether you win or lose, you got to get up the next day and do it all over again. And in addition to that, people love to celebrate their wins, which is great. But in, I am a believer now that if you cannot handle and embrace failure, you cannot handle and embrace winning. You just, you cannot do that. They don't exist without each other. It's the yin yang. And notice to my, to the listeners, I didn't say yin and yang, yin yang, because you need both of those together without the, uh, the extreme of hot and the extreme of cold, we wouldn't find the middle ground of lukewarm to, to bathe in or take our showers or whatever. Yeah. And, um, Without the high, without the low, we don't find the middle ground. Without the too hot uh, bowl of porridge or the too cold bowl of porridge, Goldilocks wouldn't have found the one that's just right. You do need those two spectrums in order to find your balance. And that balance is not unilateral. That balance is going to vary between yourself. You know, Glenn, you and I will probably find common ground on balance, but your personal balance is going to be different from mine because only you can answer what your balance is. And uh, that's really my approach to it. It's, it's, just go for it, man. And you deal with the result either way. When you get a win, you deal with that. When you get a loss, you deal with that. But either way, you got to wake up the next day and do it again. The wisdom, the wisdom that's <laughs> pouring out of you. absolutely love it. And it's funny that you said that about what you need, because I only spoke about it the other day in terms of if you have these dreams and these aspirations to produce or to build something, multi-million dollar company, if you can't handle the failures along the way, and come up against worthy opponents, so to say, how are you going to be running that? Like God leads us in a way that obviously tests us and we have growth. And I suppose if I can say something, when you talk about quotes, I use this quote that somebody put into my head and I wasn't qualified to what I've, I've achieved. And it was God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And then you learn it. And again, it comes up against lessons. But going back to your story, when it comes to you got to L.A. and you was going through a lot of things in terms of a breakup and your family and dealing with all that. And you've openly spoken before about having anxiety. How was you dealing, not only going through that through your mental health journey yourself, dealing with family issues, a breakup, and then putting yourself in the center of Los Angeles? Yeah, you know, that's that's such a, that's such a great question, Glenn. And you're taking me back to where I was <clears throat> back in 2008 which I wasn't in therapy at the time. Now I'm a big believer in therapy. Again, not preaching it to anybody to each their own, different strokes, different folks. But for me, therapy was a game changer and that didn't happen until later. So how did I deal with it then? Not well, <laughs> it would be it. Really, I was finding the wrong coping mechanisms. Uh, I was uh, using really alcohol to numb everything. Now, this isn't one of those stories where I... I realized I was an alcoholic and it's running my family. It's not one of those primetime drama moments. It's not, but I did have this almost, I guess you can call it outer body experience. One of those nights where I was out that year off, I was partying with some of my friends. Some of them were still in college or coming back home. And then we're going out to the local pub and I'm having too much to drink. And it was during that night. I realized, what am I doing? I'm doing this 
I think more often than I did in college, which is saying a lot because college is like your almost your free pass to have that uh, sort of lifestyle. And I said, this is not sustainable. This is not going to end well if I keep going down this path. And um, that's not to say I've never had a drink since. I, I do partake every once in a while. But um, for the most part, I just, I realized that's not the way to deal with stuff. Uh, numbing the pain. Uh, I think people will equate that to the grieving process. When when we have a loved one pass away or something like that, sometimes alcohol is a coping mechanism. But that numbness is going to go away. And those problems that you are avoiding are just going to be there waiting for you once that high sort of wears off. And I just, I was lucky to realize that early on, but not knowing how to implement that into my daily routine. I just knew that something had to change. It wasn't until years later, it was after my brother passed in 2015, that I really started taking the notion of therapy seriously. And uh, I started taking it very seriously by around 2018, 2019, right before the pandemic, which was uh, great timing because having been in isolation throughout 2020 with the tools of the foundation of therapy and my own coping mechanisms, that was why I was able to really come out of 2020 better than when I came in. And, uh, so that, that's really my journey as a, as a whole, but early on, yeah, it was, um, looking back again, you're, you're taking me back to that place. And I remember where I was and, uh, you know, that, that was not a healthy coping mechanism for me. Because mm -hmm. I just knew that if I continue that path, again, I probably would have never moved to LA. Who knows what I'd be doing right now? Who knows I'd even be around at this point? So, uh, so yeah, th does that answer your question? I know I, I speak in monologues and I call myself out for <laughs> no, it all the time, but I want to make sure that I, I hit all the points that you were hoping to get. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I just want to take you back a little bit further, just in terms of, obviously you grew up in Chicago with your family and your heritage being Korean with the topic of mental health, I've just recently been to Japan, my wife's Thai, um, with the Asian community, and I've had a lot of people from different countries obviously come on and notice that cultural sense in Asia it still very is such a stigmatized topic, and you're so passionate about bringing it forward. So is that something that you want to develop a lot more and i know you do a podcast within this with fictional characters uh, characters sorry and bring it to real life situations but what is it that you'd like or have you opened the conversations within the family dynamic do they talk about it openly is it different or what have you noticed culturally yeah great question again and quick shout out to dana williams my partner on real psychology thank you for the nod to that glenn uh which uh the whole point of that podcast was to use a non-threatening example like film and television that we can all relate to and get deep into those characters' mental health, but also that parlays into an overall mental health conversation. The more we talk about it, the le the more normalized it becomes, the less stigmatized it is. Now, back to what you were asking me, my mom and I are a lot more open about it. We, 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 certainly, we both um, talk about our anxieties and everything like that. In the Asian community, especially, it's very stigmatized. The certain generations grew up to just tough it out. And and I grew up in that that sort of mindset as well. And that's probably that's uh, that's probably why Korean movies and Asian movies are so intense. That's usually where we let everything out. There's a lot of repressed feelings that uh, are bottled up. And the arts can be a great way to express that. So the intensity of Korean dramas and Korean horror movies, I, I for sure think it stems from that. But it really is, look, I'm just trying to move the needle forward. I'm one ripple in this big body of water, and I'm very aware of that. But 
you know, those ripples can soon become waves. The more you keep on accumulating that, the more people you get by your side and the more people that buy in and realize that it's okay to jump in the water. Like it's like you're at a pool party, but nobody's jumped in the pool yet. The moment you see somebody's in there and it's cool, then it's like, Oh, okay. Like it's going to be all right. Let, let, let me, let me, maybe let me dip my toe in the water and let me just jump right in. And I just think the more we talk about it, the more normalized it becomes. It doesn't need to be this thing we should be ashamed of where admittedly that was something that, you know, when the notion of therapy came up years, years ago, before I bought into it, I was like, no, that's, that's, that's not for me. I don't, I don't need that. That's, that's for Jack Nicholson's character in one floor of the cuckoo's nest, stuff like that. That now I don't mean to offend anybody with any sort of psychosis or anything like that. I'm just saying that was the mindset back in 2008. I'm, I got to protect myself. You never know what people are going to catch, uh, catch on to. So I want to be very clear about that. That's not what I believe. But at the time, uh, before the talks on mental health were uh, becoming a buzz topic like they are now, that was unfortunately the mindset that you uh, basically had to be a certain type of person to go to therapy, where the truth is we can all benefit from therapy. And I also believe that therapy isn't just limited to the hour you get with your therapist. I mean, it's really... It's just like a personal trainer. If you go to your personal trainer, one hour, you know, uh, you have that one hour with your personal trainer, maybe you go every day, great. But if you're eating like crap, those other 23 hours and you're not doing the upkeep, then guess what? You're not going to progress in your fitness journey. It's the same thing with your mental health journey. What the therapist can do is help you unload some stuff and help guide you to where you're supposed to go. And really the therapist's job isn't really to tell you what to do. It's to maybe it's to really to listen to you and drop some breadcrumbs so that you can become self-sufficient and be able to help yourself the other 23 hours. And I think that's a big misconception of therapy. People think you go, I thought it was, and I admittedly, I thought that too. I thought when I first went, I was like, aren't you going to tell me what to do? Like, no, that's not what we do. What I do is you tell me and then I listen and then I can use my expertise to guide you so that you don't have to rely on me. And it's really just like, if you're a self-motivated athlete, going to your coach is great to help enhance things, but it's on you for those other hours. You're not with your coach or your therapist to really do the implementation and the improvement. And you just, you got to do the work. And that's really what it, uh, what it comes down to. So what did you find hardest then coming from the background of a professional athlete and mental fitness when it comes to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual what, what did you find hardest? Because I can only presume as a professional athlete, you're so regimented. You know what you're doing. You've got your goals. You set it. You've got your clarity. And then when it comes to spiraling out of control in your mind, was it a sense of you felt like you could control it? And I only come from my personal experience. When I went through something, I felt like I could tr- control the thoughts of struggling. And as a guy, I wouldn't speak out. And I realized I wasn't in control, so I had to surrender. So how is it in the mind of yourself personally, but as a professional athlete as well, going from control and clarity, you know what you want, you know the goal, to feeling not in control? Another great question. And didn't make it professionally. I appreciate the the flattery and I almost let that go, but I don't want anyone to jump on you for for not fact-checking. College athlete, cl- uh, pro professional adjacent is uh, probably more accurate, but you're absolutely right. When it come, came to sports, that's easy. You know, basketball, I got to put a ball in a hoop and I got to stop the other team from scoring as many baskets as we can. And am I oversimplifying? No. Uh, now there's variables in between because you can face someone like a Kobe or a Michael or LeBron who can do things that you never dreamed of. 
But really, at the end of the day, in sports, you're trying to score more points than your opponent. And to me, that's easy. Uh, now, the, the various factors outside of that and things that can happen within that are the things you got to deal with. But um, yeah, going from that controlled environment and going to an open, it's like going from a, you play a sports game. If you're any gamers out there, you play Madden, you play NBA 2K. The goal is simple. You got to win this sports match, but you go to an open world game like a Sea of Thieves. Now it's like, okay, you got all these things here. You're not sure where to go, what to do. Um, I think that's something that we really got to prepare ourselves for. And it's, um, you know, I, I like to think about it in the sense of we talk about we got to manage our time. But my whole thing is time is one of the, it's probably the, one of the most constant things in our life. Every day, there's 24 hours in a day, right? And let's, I don't think it's different in Australia. <laughs> if it's, you also get 24 hours, unless yeah. if, if y'all get a little more, then maybe I'll move to Australia and I'll have a little more time in the day. Exactly. But 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. As long as I've been alive, that's never changed. So it's not time we have to manage. We have to manage our focus. What is, what are, what is important to us within those 24 hours that we have in a day? And that's what really what it comes down to. And the winners of this world, I'm talking the MJs, the Kobe's, the LeBron's, their focus, they know they have 24 hours just like anybody else, but they chose to focus on their craft to the point of almost obsession. And maybe people would think insanity, but that's what it takes. There's going to be sacrifices. There's certain things you have to do. And uh, when it comes to control, you know, it's a funny thing. There's so many things that are out of our control but we can always control how we can react to a situation. We can't control the situation in itself, but we can control how we can react to it. And it seems like such a foreign thing to people who haven't embraced that mindset, but the truth is you can. And one of my favorite things is uh, someone says, I got butterflies in my stomach. Then the counter uh, statement to that should be, well, then get them going in the same direction. You're in control of that. So if you got butterflies fluttering here, then tell them, all right, all y'all, you're going to fly clockwise now. You're on my time now. And then that's a way to control those nerves. Am I oversimplifying? Yes. But at the same time, these things are that simple. We don't have to overcomplicate it. And you're, like I said, you're not in control of everything, all the situations that come at you, but you are in control of how you react to it. And when you fully embrace that, that becomes your foundation. And then that only gets stronger as uh, as you progress as a person. In my, in my in my personal belief and opinion. Yeah. But when it comes to all that, what you spoke about, and then you you find yourself on a one-way ticket to LA, and I go to LA each year prior to the pandemic, um, and I love networking. I love talking to everyone. I meet everyone at the gym. Everyone's like, how do you know so many people? I'm like, the gym. Because <laughs> there's a common ground. Like, nobody's wearing suits. Nobody's... I don't look at people's profession. I don't see what they do. And I get to know them as genuine relationships. But when you go with the premise of wanting to be an actor or anything like that, and you land in this foreign place, LA, it is foreign to everybody, and everyone's trying to do a lot of the same things, how do you set your mind there? Did you go back into the athlete, the dedication to the craft? Because these days, like stuff that you've done, the directing, the producing, you've got your own show as well, not only with the psychology, you've got your show with... Freddie Prince, and that's mm -hmm. going well with the horror movies. And by the way, listen to several episodes. Incredible, because that's my genre, horror. Thank you. It is my genre. Um, my my, uh, my mentor is an Aussie horror filmmaker, actually. You might have heard of him, uh, James Wan. Oh, <laughs> he's, wow. he's, yes. he's done a couple oh, of things. Wow. 
He's like my big brother too. He's the MJ to my Kobe, as as how I refer to it. Yeah, that's that, that's totally my genre. And it's like, yeah, my wife goes to bed, my kids go to bed, and they know dad's watching a horror. <laughs> so yeah. coming coming back to that, how how did you cope with that? I mean, like one way ticket, it was just I suppose starry eyes. You went there. What was the mentality of thinking I need to get into this and then dealing with anxiety? Did you still go with an angst of questioning yourself and your abilities even to the point when you got there? You know, the crazy thing is I I didn't. I knew that the one-way ticket was, one, I knew it could put potentially make for a nice story down the line should things uh, should things go well. But that was my commitment. That was me committing myself that, no, I'm going and I'm doing this and I'm all in. If I would have had set the date of, oh, I'm going to do this as a round trip. And I had my round trip for the year, uh, a year later, say August 1st, 2009 to come back. Then that's all that's going to be in my mind is, well, I can do this and do this and do this. Well, I can always go home. For me, I had to attack it as if I'm going to do this, I'm going all in. And if this doesn't work, then, then they're going to have to drag me out of LA. That just was my mentality. And going back to what, and that's a great thing that you brought up in, in terms of my athletic background because having grown up in team sports, for me, again, basketball, it, it, like you just got to figure out how to win. And you look at someone like a Michael Jordan, he just figured out how to win. It wasn't just about playing basketball. He figured out, okay, I need someone like a Scottie Pippen. I need someone like a Dennis Rodman. We need to be able to do this on defense and offense. He just figured out how to win the game in addition to being Michael. And for me, it's like I knew that I needed to meet people maybe eventually get an agent, maybe eventually get a manager, but essentially I need to meet people and I need to, I need to get good at my craft. I need to really dedicate myself to this because at the end of the day, if you're going to be a good basketball player, uh, two things, you got to focus on your craft, but also you don't only get better at basketball when you play basketball. So it was important to me to do the classes, but also just get out there filming whatever I can. I did it. I did so many student films that I never saw the finished product of most of them, but I did them. And that's, and I did short films with friends because that's where I got to try stuff out as a director and as an actor. It's really just those repetitions. So that's really where the athletic background comes from. Now, did I know going into it that it's going to be a very competitive space? Of course. But I came from sports, man. You're talking to a, a token Asian kid from the suburbs of Chicago who made his way to a Division One school to play sports. And it's like, you don't think I can handle this shit? I don't know if I can curse on the air. You can bleep that if you want. And that, that's where that that sort of mama mentality comes in, where I, de I definitely have that side of me. I just compartmentalize and I don't, uh, you know, I make sure I'm very careful with it because as a person, I still want to be how I'm talking now. But also my pursuit of things internally is I'm, I'm going to do this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to figure out what's needed to do this. And I know it's not going to be easy, but we should all know that the road to paradise goes through hell. And if you quit, guess what? You're going to stay in hell. But if you keep going, you're going to get to paradise. But then guess what happens once you get to paradise? You got to get back on the bus. It's going to take you right back around. And you got to take that trip again. That's why winning is so hard. That's why you don't see repeat champions a lot in professional sports. Mm. Because it's hard. The things that's going to work for you the first time around, it may not work the second time because someone else figured you're, like figured out, oh, well, they did this. So I can do this. And now I can get a level up. Which is essentially what I've been doing. I've been... I, look, I, very, I pay close attention to what's going on with people, not in the sense of I'm directly competing with them, but I make note of, oh, that's interesting. They're doing that. 
okay, well, I need to work on this then because if this person's doing this, then I want to raise my game up. And mm -hmm. that's just how my mentality is. Unfortunately, people may see someone on a certain level and their instincts try to tear that person down to try to level the playing field, which I don't agree with at all. I have some choice words that I have for that, but I won't say it here just out of, uh, just, just so nobody can uh, clip that and put any kind of bad rap on, on your, on your show, Glenn. But when I see someone with other level, a uh, level up on me, that's a motivating factor for me to go, wow, I got, there's more to go. And you could be, you could be someone like a Michael Jordan, who's probably the best at their job as anybody could have been good at their job, but he always tried to seek out that next level. And that's why the bulls had so many championships in the nineties. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that, so I certainly bring that team sports mentality, but also that dynamic is what I bring on the film set, because I tell people, show me, somebody who's won the best picture at the Oscars by themselves. You can't do it. It takes a whole team to do that. It does filter down from leadership, which is oftentimes is the director. And then your number one on the call sheet are your Kobe's, your LeBron's and how you treat, how they attack, attack their craft is going to filter down to the rest of the cast. So the team sports mentality for sure supplemented everything I've done. But, um, but also I have to compartmentalize and realize there's no direct competition like there is in sports. Uh, I just truly don't believe in that because I think if you do that, you're buying into scarcity mentality. And I think that's very dangerous because the truth is Mount Everest is a really big mountain. There's enough room for all of us to climb up and we're all going to have our moment at the top. And then when it's our time to let have someone else be at the top, then we get back down and we climb back up again. That's, that's what it's all about. And I think if more people embrace that, then, um, I would think it'd be like a healthier environment, but not everybody's willing to do the work and no judgment on them. That's just the facts. But if you're willing to do that work, you got to be willing to do it day in and day out and not just when things are going your way. It is the truth. And, uh, and, and bring it to Imperfectly Perfect campaign, like these pictures you can see on the camera. These are some of Australia's biggest names. I utilize photography. Like you said, arts can tell a story. And I think one of the things with me and why I'm speaking to people like yourself, very proficient, uh, prolific in your area and all of these celebrities, whether public figures, whatever, is people see the now. They see where you are now, but they don't see the struggle, the sacrifices, what it's taken. And I think if people, and I always say this, research, they read the autobiography of a lot of people, they will be clapping the loudest. They won't be looking at competition. They'll be like, you know what? That person deserves that because look what they've had to go through. Do I think that I could actually do that, what that person has? Because, yeah, what some of you guys have done. But now, as you said, you're achieving or you have achieved some great things and it's a continuous cycle. I ask everybody who comes on the show, what does it mean through everything you've been through to be imperfectly perfect? I think that's beautiful. And also perfection is subjective. And I think an illusion too, because it goes back to that quote, one person's trash is another person's treasure. So whatever my idea of perfection is, it will differ from might differ from what you think, Glenn, but we may have, may have some common denominators, but uh, essentially that's going to be different. And it goes back to what I said earlier about balance. We have to create that balance for ourselves not based on what other people have utilized to create their balance. So to be imperfectly perfect, I think is a beautiful thing. I think, I think perfection is a, is a, is almost a fool's errand in a, in a, in a lot of ways, because there's, to me, there's no universal unilateral definition of perfection. That's just going to differ from person to person. And I think we need to know that that's okay. 
where there is something in, in psychology known as the perfection wound, which I certainly have, uh, have uh, dealt with. And the perfection wound in simplest terms is when you don't say you have a math test or whatever, an exam in college, and you, you get a 99% instead of 100%, you beat yourself up for not getting the 100%. And that's not healthy. And I, I do that too. And I'm very much a perfectionist in, in that sense. I know I'm, I'm spe- almost speaking in dialectics here or uh, almost like an oxymoron, but I, I certainly understand that. But the biggest thing is we got to just do our best and we deal with the result when we get it. And we all we can do, no matter whether we get 100% on the test or get a zero on the test, you got to get up again and do it again. And um, so either you're going to improve or you're going to find another level somehow beyond the 100% which I know mathematically they say that's not possible, but who's this? Who, I don't believe in that. I think why put ourselves in a box? Why think without limits? Why? I don't even want to think outside the box. I think there's no box and we, we should think freely, but it's on ourselves in terms of our own discipline, how to filter that down so it serves us and hopefully serves people around us as well. So to be imperfectly perfect, I think is a beautiful thing. Again, that's almost a dialectic as well, because you know, you're know you saying that you're imperfectly perfect, which perfect is perfect. But I think that's such a great phrase. But also, I would just urge people to really embrace the notion that there's no such thing as perfect. There's just not. Uh, and, I, and that's how I've approached my life. I'm sure there's moments where it feels that way. But at the same time, there's always another level. There's always another place to go. There's always another happy place you can go. Don't cheat yourself by capping yourself at this is the perfect moment. I would say this is a great moment. And if I keep doing the work, I can get an even greater moment. There's no ceiling as far as what we can do. So embrace your imperfect perfectness. It's okay to not be okay because uh, we're all human at the end of the day. Even Superman, I'm sure, needs some sort of therapy after all the stuff he goes through. (laughs) And imagine what Superman goes through when he couldn't save that one person, even though he saved probably thousands of people that day. And um, it's even the most, even the mightiest of heroes got to understand that there's no such thing as perfect. And once again, it's okay to not be okay. I just think uh, I love these conversations because there's so much wisdom that people come out with. You can take nuggets and all I keep getting with you is just pure wisdom. So our audience is going to love this episode. But if there's out of anything, just two final questions. What would you want to say to our audience who may be struggling, who are listening to your story and they've seen the external of the incredible things you do now? What is that message you'd like to give them? That you're not alone. That you're not alone. What you're going through is not unique to you. Now, it is unique because it's your experience, but anxiety, depression, all those things, I still struggle with it. I have my days where I'm not feeling my best and I have my days where I'm in the zone and I know I'm untouchable, but that's just not like the, 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 the truth of the matter is it's, we're going to have ebbs and flows. And like we said earlier in the podcast, if you can't handle failure, you can't handle winning that that's, that's just the truth of it all. And I've learned more from my failures and believe me, there've been many failures. <laughs> I've learned exponentially more from that than I have from my wins. My wins were, if anything, that was me complimenting what I learned from my failure of, Oh, cause I had made this adjustment. I was able to get this result. But the only way you grow is if you fail. That's really, I truly believe that. So to anyone out there, you're not alone. Uh, I always recommend therapy. And also just look, I, I, I go through it myself and yeah, I'm more open about it than maybe other people would be. Hopefully it'll get to a point where everybody's open about it and share it at your own discretion. Obviously, you don't have to overshare, share as much as you're comfortable with. 
but you're not alone and you got this and you don't have to deal with it alone. Whether it's talking to a friend, talking to a loved one you trust or hugging your dog. Like I like to do my, my favorite coping mechanism right now is I just play my dog. And because dogs are just the purest creatures that we'll ever encounter uh, in our lifetime. And hopefully uh, you all would take that message to heart, but more than anything, you're not alone and it's okay to not be okay. Uh, But either way, win or lose, you got to get up the next day and do it again. And always have that desire to get up the next day and do it again, whether you win or lose. Amazing, mate. Amazing. Tell everybody where they can find you and what's next. Please do tell people about these two awesome shows that you do as well. I know you've got film projects, so let everybody know about those. But these two shows, I was listening to them when I was doing my research. And obviously, it was one of the Instagram posts that got put in front of me. So there's no such thing as um, coincidences, serendipitous, and it just stood out. And when I started looking more and more with this advocacy, your show's hilarious. Like, Thank you. Towers with the mental health, but with Freddie Prince, like, you've got to be a horror genre fanatic. But tell <laughs> <laughs> people about where they can find you, John, and more things. Yeah, it's just John Lee Brody across the board. John Hold the H is what I say. So J-O-N uh, Lee Brody. So that's just me. That's me on uh, TikTok, Instagram. Facebook, Twitter. Uh, I'm on all those platforms. I have two podcasts. One is Real Psychology, which is we discuss the fictional, we discuss the mental health of fictional characters, myself and Dana Williams, who is a licensed psychotherapist. So me, the filmmaker, mental health advocate, and Dana, who is also a wonderful actress. She consults on big TV shows and big movies for their mental health uh, and their in their writing. And she's also a licensed psychotherapist. So between the two of us, her being an African-American woman, me being an Asian-American male with our skill sets and unique backgrounds, it just, it makes for a really great combination and great conversations week in and week out. Cause we always, it, I look, it's almost like I get free therapy. I make the joke each week. I, I got a Venmo Dana after each of our episodes. Cause that's like, I got a free hour of therapy with her, which, and you know, it's, you want to pay people what they're worth. So one is, um, uh, that was pretty scary. It's a horror podcast with uh, Amazon Wondery slash uh, Morbid Network. Morbid is, I think, the biggest true crimes podcast uh, on all platforms. So we became part of their network. And it's me and Freddie Prince Jr., who's like my best friend and also my big brother. We uh, discuss every horror movie ever made, but it's not just a review show. It's really where we were, how it impacted us as artists or as 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 horror fans, and also where the world was when these movies came out. You know, and uh, I think that's always important to to to, uh, to explore as well because it's very easy to judge something through the lens of today. And I think, in a way, that's a good thing because that means we've progressed as a society and progressed as people. But we should also understand what was going on at the time and not harshly judge things too much, especially with the arts. Now, certain th- I think we should acknowledge that okay, that joke does not hold up now, and we shouldn't we shouldn't say that we pro- we shouldn't have said it then. But the culture was that people did say that. But if we can acknowledge that we shouldn't say that now and we understand they said it back then, I think that's the healthy balance of those things. So it's really it's almost like it's a horror review podcast, but also like a time travel podcast because we'll take you back to the year that certain movies came out. And uh, those are the two main shows. There's a couple of things in the pipeline uh, on the narrative creative side. I also, in addition to all this, to bring it back to my sports background, I'm the chief creative officer of Amazing HQ which is a sports media outlet that focuses on Asian athletes. And it's something that I wish I had growing up because it was tough for me to get noticed from what I was doing with sports, but amazing HQ shines a light on these up and coming Asian athletes who maybe are just in high school or college. We highlight pros as well, because 
there are more Asian American athletes in professional sports. But more than anything, we want to provide a platform where all these athletes can can truly be seen and heard. I mean, even in the NBA, we had <clears throat> there's Rui Hachimura on the Lakers, the first Japanese American to ever play in the Lakers. There's Jalen Williams, the first person of Vietnamese descent to ever play in the NBA. Now, the night that LeBron broke Kareem's scoring record, that was the headline news. But that night, Jalen Williams and Rui Hachimura, two Asian American athletes, were on the court together and they both had a monster game. The first time, I believe it was the first time the first Japanese American Laker and the first Vietnamese descent uh, basketball player in the NBA were facing each other, at least on those respective teams. And what Amazing HQ wants to do is shine a light on those things because those that's not going to be the headline on ESPN, but it'll be a headline where we are. And um, that's helping me hopefully move the needle forward in terms of Asian American representation because there are plenty of us playing these sports. They're just not putting the light, uh, shining a light on them like we would want them to. It's very much like if you're, you you know the conundrum, the if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a noise? And if no one's around, does it make a noise? And people, and then on The Simpsons, they said, well, if no one's around, how can noise exist? And my counter to that, Lisa Simpson, is what if you're the tree? Because if I'm that tree that fell in the woods, I know I made a noise. Now you might not have been around to hear it or see it, but I know I fucking made a noise. Mm -hmm. And it's all about, so I think if we take that perspective, just because we didn't see it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And what we're trying to do with these Asian athletes is we're taking away the excuse of I never got to see or hear of it. It's like, no, you're hearing it and seeing it right here. And now it's up to you if you're going to pay attention to this person or not. So those are like the main things right now. Uh, as far as anything else, look, any any sort of inside baseball I can give you when I can announce some stuff, <laughs> I'll certainly give it to you because I've really enjoyed this conversation, Glenn. Thank and you. um. And then anyone out there who may not feel seen and heard, look, just a fun fact. I, in 2019, I directed a show called DC Universe All-Star Games for DC Comics, which is like a dream come true because I grew up loving DC. What people don't talk about is that made me the first Korean American to ever direct for DC Comics. And to this day, it is not acknowledged by Warner Brothers or even DC, really. It's only been only one publication asked me about it. And it was my buddy Craig over at Krypton site, who used to cover Smallville back in the day. And um, and that's a tough pill for me to swallow at times because you would hope that that would have given been some, a cause for celebration. But all I can do is remind people that that was me, but also know internally that was me. I did that. I quietly made history. Now, whether I got the parade and the song and dance or not, I don't think that's relevant. Maybe one day it'll come. But you all, anyone listening out there, you are going to achieve these things. And we've been conditioned to think that when we do that, there's going to be this parade or something waiting for us. It's not always the case. Sometimes it is. It's just not always the case. Just know that you did it. And it should be enough to share it within yourself and knowing that you did that. If you have loved ones around you, you can share it with even better. But the most important thing is knowing you internally did this. It's like on the airplane, get your oxygen mask on first, then help others. Because you can't help others unless you help yourself. So I think on that note is what I'd like to leave your listeners with. But I just feel led to say this to you because that, that I want to acknowledge that. And whilst there's this audience here and we are international, if you feel led, then do. If not, but when you're acknowledging the Asian community when it comes to this, what would you say to that little Korean boy back home who might have seen what you've achieved? And you can say it in Korean so you can speak straight to that little boy's heart that you needed to hear 
Because I'd love to hear that. I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it. But just giving that little boy that you need to hear that message. I would say, uh, Jana, 잘했습니다. Uh, 괜찮아요. So I would, you're doing great. You're doing fine. Uh, you're you're going to be just fine, is really what I would tell him. Uh, it, it didn't seem like it at the time. But in retrospect, I look back and it all led to here. And did I make mistakes along the way? Of course. But I would just say, um, 괜찮아요. It's okay. Uh, more than anything. And I think um, I needed to hear that more often growing up, to be honest. It sounds so simple. But when you grow up thinking, trying to not make the mistakes, and any mistake is almost, again, it's going back to that perfection wound, you have to understand that it's it's okay to fail and, and you're doing just fine. Uh, you know, Being successful or being whatever isn't being 100% from the field. Like Michael Jordan wasn't 100% from the field, and he's considered the greatest basketball player of all time. Tom Brady didn't win all of his Super Bowls. He didn't. Uh, he won a lot of them, but not all of them. And he didn't win all his games, but still considered one of the greatest of all time. I think let's get rid of that perfection. Uh, again, imperfectly perfect. Let's be imperfectly perfect and really embrace that. I think it'd be a better way to put it, uh, keep it in a, on brand with your show. Well, well, you probably touch more lives than you know when these mental health conversations go out. So guys, I'm going to put all the links to where you can find Johnny's amazing work. Um, I'm over in LA in November and I just want to catch up for a coffee for your wisdom. <laughs> so, well, well, uh, look, I would love to come back, Glenn, because the beauty of, of what we do, and I think the one of the great things about mental health is there's no finite solution. There's no ceiling. I would love to have another talk with you again and we can just see where we are now. And maybe that could just be our check-in, however, whatever it's, whether it's once a year or whatever it is, I think that's always an important thing too. And I think when we check in on others, you may check in on your friend today, they might be fine, but maybe the next day they're not. And I think it's always a great indicator of what our growth is to follow up. So November, great. Let me know when you're in LA. We'll grab a coffee. Maybe we'll do an in-person recording of our pot, of, the, of your show. Yeah. And uh, we'll see where we are then. And uh, I, knowing what you're doing here, you truly are doing the Lord's work, Len. And uh, I know you're doing the work. So I really applaud you for that. I love this platform that you created. So whatever I can do to support you, I, I'm definitely here for you. But I do know that come November, we'll have a lot more to talk about because this was just really the catalyst for, uh, I think, just an infinite amount of conversations we'll have. So I look forward to it. Uh, me too. So guys, remember... All the links will be placed up. Remember, the biggest thing with Imperfectly Perfect campaign is to keep having those hard conversations because it is the hard conversations that do save lives. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.